I, I, one of the struggles that I'm going through is just knowing, like, I have an enormous sense of, um, responsibility to my publisher. And I, and I, I feel an enormous sense of responsibility to do everything I absolutely can marketing wise to help. And it's probably the, just my self publishing background. It's like, well, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What Were You Thinking, the podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to a brand new episode of What Were You Thinking? I'm trying out a new microphone again, so I'm sorry if my audio is a bit wonky uh, for the intro and the ending and the asides. I'm figuring stuff out. I'm not an audio person. Doing the best I can. But anyways, today I am speaking with Shoshana Friedman. S.M. Friedman is her author name. Author of Blood Atonement. This is an amazing episode because Shoshana has a very unique journey as an author. She self-published, then she landed a publisher, then she self-published again, and now she's being traditionally published once again. She has a lot of information to share about self-publishing versus traditional publishing, what it was like when a publisher picked up a book that she had already self-published, and how she found her agent and her entire journey from start to finish. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. S.M. Friedman, author of Blood Atonement. Tell me about your writer journey. Like how, you know, were you a writer as a kid? Um, Was it always your dream to be published? All that kind of good stuff. It was. So I think the dream kind of exploded inside me when I was about 12 years old. And um, I was a terrible student. I paid absolutely no intention in class. So, but I was really lovely about it. So it took my teachers a long time into the school year to realize I wasn't paying any attention or doing any of my homework. And I didn't even know I had homework because I was busy like making up stories in my own head. So I wasn't paying any attention. And so I had a really um, challenging time in school until I got to the seventh grade and I had a teacher who kind of looked at me and looked at what I was doing and went, oh, okay, so you're a writer. And I was like, and I'd been writing a lot of like, you know, really crappy poetry and things like that, you know, 12 year old stuff um, that I hope doesn't ever really see the light of day. But, um, and I was writing some kind of, you know, teen angst love story. And, uh, but just having that affirmation really made all the difference to me. It's that whole one good teacher uh, thing. And uh, from that moment on, it was like, oh, well, I'm a writer. And so it kind of gave me the, the freedom and the confidence to, to keep going with that. Um, I spent a lot of time in my life doing other things. I, I went into theater. That was my big thing. Um, Out of, out of uh, high school, I, I went to, um, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York and I studied theater and that was kind of a dream as well but I got to the end of that my schooling and realized it's I don't have what it takes to handle all the rejection that comes with this so of course I went back to writing because you know there's absolutely no rejection (laughs) right (laughs) yes right from the go Right. I'm going to choose that kind of rejection over this kind of rejection. And that's kind of what, what I did. Although I did a lot of things along the way, including I was a, a private investigator for um, just shy of a decade. And, uh, and, yeah, I owned, and you, sorry, you own, I owned a business at one point too. Oh, so, what yeah. kind of business? Oh God. I owned a women's fitness thing. Uh, <laughs> a win- women's fitness facility for, uh, seven or eight years oh wow okay um so in seventh grade when your teacher said you should you you're a writer did you know what that meant I think I did because I certainly was an avid reader and I loved stories and I I 
was dabbling in, in writing myself, but, uh, so I think I did. Um, I don't remember having any confusion about it. I, I remember having an enormous sense of affirmation that everything that I'd been mm -hmm. doing, um, was okay. And I mean, he was, he was a good enough teacher to say, you still have to pay attention <laughs> to math and science and everything else. But, uh, but I, I, you know, he gave me that affirmation that I could be creative and, and, and that was okay too. So you didn't actually pursue it right out of school or did you? No, I really didn't. I kind of, uh, I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the way, my passion turned more to theater. And so that's what I pursued. And it wasn't until I was an adult and it was after doing um, a number of other careers that I, I actually said to my husband, um, and I think my my first child was only about three years old. And I said, you know, I really want to get back into writing. And it was, I hadn't even been writing since he knew me, like we'd been, you know, um, going through life and doing our other jobs and stuff. And but he was wonderful. And he said, well, well, then do it. And so I started and um, I started taking some classes and uh, exploring that and, and learning um, everything that I'd forgotten and then learning a lot more on top of that. And uh, it kind of went from there. And so my first book was um, The Faithful. Mm -hmm. And it was an enormous, at least in the beginning, enormous tome of like 140,000 words that needed to be seriously edited. But uh, I learned through that process and um, that I actually self-published that originally. I had no intention of um, publishing traditionally in the early days. And um, I entered it into the um, Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award. And uh, it came in, now I'm trying to remember, it was like a quarter finalist, I believe. And I believe that's how my first publisher found me, uh, Thomas and Mercer, mm. um, which is the an Amazon imprint. And they what I got this weird phone call one day uh, from this woman who was like, oh, I'm a editor at Thomas and Mercer. And I didn't even know what Thomas and Mercer was. <laughs> I was completely like not paying attention to traditional publishing at all. And so I totally thought she was a scam. <laughs> and uh, it took me a long time to realize that no, actually, this is this is actually legit. And um, we kind of went from there. So they republished The Faithful and and that was the start of my traditional-ish journey. Okay, so why did you decide to self-publish from the start? That's an unusual route to go for somebody who is, you know, wants to have books out there. Yeah, I, you know, it's hard to remember what my thinking was at that time, but I think I just didn't, I just wanted to have control of it all, I think at the time. And I didn't know a lot. I learned a lot through the whole self-publishing process. And I actually think that comes in handy for me um, now that I'm traditionally published as well. I think I take a lot, I, I pay a lot more attention to what I can do to support my publisher in, in, you know, getting book sales and success um, that I don't think I would necessarily have known or or understood if I hadn't done the self-publishing route first and realized how much work it is and how hard it mm -hmm. is. I mean, the authors who self-publish and, um, you know, you become a, a, a real business person um, in many, many ways, and it's incredibly difficult to do it well. I mean, it's easy enough to, you know, launch something onto Amazon, but it just goes into the you know, pit of thousands and thousands of other books to do it well is real, um, takes real biz business acumen and uh, a lot more understanding of a lot of different aspects of publishing than you necessarily need to if you're if you're doing traditional. Yeah, so, you have to wear all the hats and you you're the one wearing them. Yeah, exactly. So you so, self, so you self-published The Faithful. What was the response in the sales like before... Uh, it was Thomas Mercer, you said, right? Yeah, Thomas Oof. Mercer. Okay. Um, so the, and they're the mystery thriller imprint for Amazon. Uh, so the, um, actually they must've been really good because I hit, 
I think I hit the Amazon like number one for a very brief moment, like overall, I think I was there for like maybe eight hours. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> dropping again. And, Did you get the uh, screenshot? <laughs> I got the screenshot. That's the important thing, right? Yeah. I got the screenshot. Um, this may never happen again. Um, and I was like right next to Stephen King, which was like, ah, <laughs> so, um, but, and I think, so I think that might've, might've also garnered some attention. I'm not entirely sure why they noticed me. Um, but I guess the editor read my book and, and liked it and saw work that could be done, which there was a lot of work. Still yeah. To was, that was going to be my next question. Like how much rewriting and what kind of work had to be done to get it ready for Thomas oh, and Mercer plenty so um their editors were fantastic but uh I I mean it was a long involved book there's many different um points of view and I was writing in first person and third person I mean it was like it was it was quite um quite a far reach for somebody writing their first novel I look back at that and I'm like what was I thinking but the thing is I wasn't thinking I was just writing what I enjoyed and I had this story I wanted to tell and it was fun to tell it from different points of view and have them all kind of weave together um but they definitely said to me you need to cut some of these POVs you need to take some of some of these chapters and take them out of this lesser characters POV and put them into a different person or cut it all together and and they were totally right um it made it a stronger story. And how, how did you feel at that time when they're telling you to make all these changes? Um, I, I was quite excited about it. I think there's always a moment when you kind of go, oh, really? You know, because I love this character. I love that line or I love that scene or whatever. And then, and those are the times, if I feel like a really strong resistance to it, I kind of have learned that I need to sit with it for a bit because it's probably a, a true editorial note and I need to pay attention to it. I just have, I'm having an emotional reaction. So I need to step back, sit with it for a bit. And usually they're right. Um, I actually haven't ever found um, any of the editors I've worked with to be wrong. They, they always know what they're talking about um, and they can see it from a different perspective than I can being too, too immersed in it. And um, yeah, so so they were right. And I was happy to do it once I wrapped my head around it, wrapped my heart around it. And, and I think it definitely made it a better book. So you had this great experience with the faithful yeah. and was, was it that experience that made you want to write a second book or was the story just not ready to finish yet? Well, with The Faithful, the story wasn't finished yet. And I think I was already most of the way through Impact Winter, which is the sequel, mm -hmm. when um, Thomas and Mercer came knocking. So I was already kind of most of the way in there. And I might have even been finished the first draft and I was editing. I can't remember. But um, but at the time, and it might be different now because this was a while ago, Thomas and Mercer wasn't really interested in the sequel. Um, so I actually ended up self-publishing the sequel yeah. and there's a third and final in the trilogy that I'm struggling to write. So that's, it's not done. The story's not done and hopefully I'll find my way through to the end, but I keep getting other ideas along the way. And then I have to kind of, I'm like a goldfish. Oh, that's pretty. And that's an interesting idea. <laughs> and I need to write that instead. And that's probably when you, you decided to write um, the day she died and then blood atonement, right? Yeah, exactly. The day she died and blood atonement um, came right on top of each other. Actually, the day she died, I, I worked on for what feels like an eternity, <laughs> um, struggling through that one. And then um, blood atonement was kind of right on the heels of that. So by the time the day she died was published, blood atonement was just about ready to go out on on submission as well. And that's that book, Blood Atonement. What, can you summarize for the listeners what that book is about? Blood Atonement? Yeah. 
Because um, I, I would do it, but I'll release spoilers and I don't want to do that. So, <laughs> you know who did it? No, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you who the bad guy was. Um, so, Blood Atonement, it tells the story of a woman named Grace who grew up in a uh, fundamentalist sect of the Mormon church. Um, for anybody who doesn't know the what the FLDS is, that's like um, Netflix's special Keep Sweet, Pray in a Bay, or um, under the banner of heaven, they they believe in plural marriage. They are very generally very isolated, very extreme in their beliefs and their religion. Um, and so we actually have uh, most people don't know this, but we actually have a sect of them that live up in uh, rural BC. And uh, the rest of them are kind of more in the southern United States. And they still follow Warren Jeffs, who is in prison. He's still considered their prophet. So Grace grew up in an isolated sect um, in rural BC. I fictionalized it. And um, at the age of 18, she leads an escape. Uh, she, es she escapes with uh, nine other children. And... Uh, but because of the emotional trauma that she's experienced, she's suffering from dissociative identity disorder, which was used to be called multiple personality disorder. Some people know it better that way. And um, years later, after, after she's escaped and led these children out, the other people that she escaped with, the children, begin to die under suspicious circumstances. And Grace, with the help of an RCMP officer, uh, Bo has to determine whether one of her altered personalities is a murderer or whether she's about to be the next victim. Perfect. <laughs> Say no more. Spoilers. <laughs> Given your history I, as a private investigator in Vancouver, correct? Yes. And I, I was wondering how much of your decision to write in the suspense thriller mystery uh, categories was influenced by that work? I think my inspiration to write in those categories actually has more to do with what I've always loved reading. Because um, I was, you know, I was a huge, I mean, going back to childhood, I was a huge Goosebumps fan, and then Stephen King. And, and, and then I got into mysteries, like even um, like Sue Grafton's Alphabet series. I loved that series. Um, and uh, the, so there was, that's kind of what I enjoyed reading. And I also enjoyed things that um, I enjoyed reading stuff that kind of cross genres to some extent, like maybe there was a speculative element um, or, you know, there's ghosts or there's witches or there, I don't know. I enjoyed a lot of that stuff and um, I, I enjoyed being scared. So I think that more influenced it. I think the private investigation career helped me to learn how to do proper research. Um, it helped me to um, know, um, understand more about motivation behind what somebody might be doing. Cause I, you'd have to kind of try and figure out a little bit of their psychology to kind of get a step ahead of them and what they might be doing or what they might do next um, or why they might be doing it. Sometimes it was helpful to understand that. And, uh, and I think it helped me figure out how to do an investigation. Although I still feel like um, writing the investigative part of a story for me is the absolute hardest part. Um, yeah. Why? I think because I'm, I'm con constantly second guessing myself feeling like I'm not smart enough to do this investigation, but my character needs to be. So what, would he be doing what would he, like with Bo because some of the chapters are from Bo's point of view and he's he's an RCMP detective um what would he be doing next in his investigation and so I'm constantly second guessing myself as to whether that's correct even when I've done all the research that I've done it's like well am I thinking the way he would be thinking and and so I I find that part a little bit harder to piece together than the um the more emotional writing what kind of research did you have to do for this, for blood atonement? Oh, tons. Um, so I had to do a ton of research into the FLDS. Just a little bit of information about the FLDS, which is the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, they are Mormons. However, they splintered off from the original Mormon 
sect of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because the people who practice under FLDS were big supporters of polygamy. And the Mormon church decided that that was not cool anymore. And Warren Jeffs, who, by the way, is a real piece of shit and has been convicted of several sex crimes and assisted sex crimes involving children. So he said, fine, I'm out of here. I'm creating my own sect and we are going to practice the way that we want. Because I didn't know all that much. I was just kind of fascinated um, by them. And I, so I did a ton of research into the FLDS. I read a number of memoirs, which was really helpful to kind of have an understanding of what it was like to grow up in that kind of environment with those kind of blinders on with those beliefs, where you truly don't have any ability to look at things in a, a different way. This is, you know, you're very protected from anybody else's beliefs. And this, so this is what you think. And it's, you know, it's pretty extreme. Um, and the damage that it's done to people. Um, it's a, it's horrible, the damage that it's done to the children that have grown up there. The, the boys get kicked out because they're, you know, with plural marriage, what happens is you have too many males. So the older priesthood heads take the young pretty girls to as their wives and that leaves the young boys with nothing to do and so they get kicked out and there's this whole group of lost boys of the flds um and uh the other aspect i had to research deeply was the psychology um for grace the uh you know having uh, having an understanding uh, a true understanding of what this disorder would mean to her and because i didn't want to sensationalize it i wanted to try and get as real as possible because the people who are suffering from dissociative identity disorder they do they suffer from it usually because they were traumatized over and over again as children and this was their brain's way of protecting them so i did not want to sensationalize or make a you know mockery of it in any way i wanted to really explore that in a truthful and um sensitive way and where did the idea for the book come from? Because, you, you know, your your books tend to have uh, troubled young people. Yeah. Um, I want to say. So, you know, where did the idea for, for Grace and her story come from? What was the genesis? I think it was actually, um, if I go back in time, I think I'd watched uh, an interview with a woman who had multiple personalities, uh, dissociative identity disorder. And I think I've, I've always been fascinated by that. And um, watching her interview, it was much more um, real than, you know, what you might see in, in fiction where it was kind of, it's used as a, you know, a trigger. Or, um, and so I, that I think is where I developed the fascination for it. Um, and then I think when I read that dissociative identity disorder is caused by, you know, prolonged trauma, usually in childhood. And so it's very much associated with kids that grew up in cults that kind of tied into something I was already interested in, which was that uh, the FLDS that are up in BC. Um, and so I, I think those two kind of came together and, and that started, that was like the little seed that started to grow. I think that we're fascinated with religion that we don't understand and don't have exposure to. Yeah. Yeah. So why Mormonism as opposed to some other kind of interesting cult? Um, so it's funny, I guess I'm a, a slightly interested in cults. I'm going to have to try and steer clear of that in the future because the faithful and, and stuff is actually, I don't want to become like the cult writer. Um, <laughs> The faithful is, a, um, there's a cult in there that I actually created. So, so that one's completely fictionalized. And I didn't even realize I was kind of doing it again in a different way until very close to publication. So there's where my blinders were. But um, I, I think in my own religion, um, I've seen some extremes that I struggle to to witness um i've seen extremes where you know uh, a child 
that isn't conforming might be um, kind of banished from the family. They'll sit Shiva for them, which, you know, mm. as you know, means that they consider them dead. Um, I've seen that happen. And I, I don't, you know, I don't want to say that that's all of my religion, but it's, there is an aspect. And I think it's not so much religion that I'm interested in. It's extremism. Um, I'm quite fascinated by extremism and then the damage it does. And obviously a lot of times extremism is religious, but a lot of times it's political or it's um, social or it's, you know, there's so many different aspects and a lot of times they all just kind of tie together. And I think, you know, with, with the way um, history has been playing out for the last oh yeah decade or so, or maybe a lot longer, I think my, my interest in that has just grown over time to see this extremism and this brainwashing and and how dangerous it is yeah and we see it daily yes we do yeah yeah um the day she died did, did you self-publish that one as well no no that's published by dundurn um right. as as well as blood atonement um and uh yeah so the day she died is uh it's um it's more of a, a story about a woman uh her name is Eve, who uh, has a, a really horrible accident that um, yes, she has a brain injury. And, uh, and this brain injury kind of, she has to struggle through figuring out what happened in her childhood. There's a lot she's forgotten. There's more she's forgotten than what she remembers. And uh, so it's kind of a, a psychological thriller journey through Eve's past and present. Um, as she's struggling to to kind of knit back together her life um, after this accident and then um, trying to figure out what happened in the past because there's things that have happened and things she's done that she doesn't remember. And uh, yeah. Uh, did you have an agent for that? One? I did. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had an agent for... Um, both both the day she died in blood atonement i didn't have an agent for the faithful um obviously because i wasn't really looking for a publishing mm -hmm. contract at that point and um although in in retrospect it might have been smart to take a pause when i got that offer and find myself an agent because they definitely do an amazing job of mm -hmm. um of protecting you and negotiating for you you know being your advocate um so I learned that the hard way too, I guess, but, um, but, uh, yeah, so I had an agent for, uh, the day she died and blood atonement and, uh, and, uh, that's a different agent than I'm with now, which is, yeah. And, and why the switch? I'm curious. Um, I think that the direction I was going in and the direction that my former agent were, was going in were just not matching up well. Um, she's amazing. She's a great agent. She was an absolute bulldog for me. Um, but, uh, I just, I think we got to a point where we couldn't see a way forward together. That's actually kind of common, right? Yeah. And were you terrified when you thought you would have to try to find a new agent? Absolutely. I was absolutely terrified. I, you know, and, and I was really sad too, you know, it's one of these things you don't, you, you sign with an agent and you truly hope that this is going to be a lifetime relationship, just kind of in the same way as when you get married or something you you're expecting and wanting is this to last and for you to build something, you know, strong and trusting and successful together. And, um, so that was really hard for me. And, um, it was, it was, uh, really scary. Uh, really scary to go back to because I know how hard it was to find my first agent. It was incredibly difficult. Um, and uh, so it was kind of like back to the trenches. And um, I think every time I publish something, I'm always wondering if it will be the last. I don't think you can ever guarantee that you'll ever publish again. And so having that hiccup in, in the midst of you know, my publishing career and in the midst of a pandemic and all of that other stuff going on was, was really challenging, but I'm so happy. I'm so happy that that's, that happened now because I'm really thrilled to be with Stacy. It feels like a really great fit. How did you approach finding your first agent and your second agent differently? 
Oh, okay. Um, actually, I did a lot the same. So, um, with my first agent, I started with, you know, uh, sending out. I mean, you do all your research and you, you know, create your query package and you do all of that stuff. And then I sent out my queries to, I don't know, eight to 10 agents at a time. And, and then you kind of wait for some responses and you go through that process. And then the reason I actually um, got my first agent was I went to Thriller Fest um, in New York and they have uh, Pitch Fest. And so that was kind of like a speed dating with agents situation. And uh, I think I met with eight or nine, I pitched to eight or nine agents there. And um, I I kind of, and, and at the end of that, I think I had of the eight or nine, almost, I think all of them except one asked for my material. So, and I'm sure some of them were just being polite because you're in your face to face, it's maybe a little harder to say no than it is on email. But um, I ended up getting three offers um, from that pitch fest. And, uh, and then I had a delightful decision to make about which way to go. Um, and, uh, but uh, that was, I don't think I would have gotten my first agent without that. I think that in person thing really helped. Um, the second time it was in the midst of the pandemic and there's certainly no in person stuff mm -hmm. going on. So I basically went back to to what I did the first time, which was sending out queries um to agents that I thought would be a good fit or agents that I kind of knew because I friendly with their authors or, you know, what have you. And um and went from there. And Stacy Stacy was, I had a, another offer as well, but Stacy kept, Stacy was so honest with me about what she saw as the things that needed to be worked on, on the manuscripts that I, because I gave her two, um, bless her. She read two manuscripts um, and, uh, and she gave me really good advice. And then the other agent that wanted it just wanted it exactly as it was and was like, it's ready to go. And, but Stacy's words kept with me that, you know, no, it's not. And, and this could be, uh, this is what needs to be worked on. And I loved how editorial she was. I feel like I really need that. So you handed her two versions of the same story? Two no. different stories. Oh, I know. Right. Wow. I did actually, I mean, she asked for them. So I shouldn't say like I, I threw two stories at her here, read them both. She actually offered to read this. She, I had my query. I kind of mentioned both because they were both kind of ready to query. And that was another problem is I'm, I don't know which one to query. Um, and they're both kind of different, very different from each other. And, uh, and so I queried her with one with a little mention of the other one. And she was like, well, that one sounds great, but I really want to read that one. And so I, and so I think she asked for both. Yeah. And then she read them. Well, and my, I want to go back to Impact Winter because you self-published that one and yeah. why you decided that the day she died should be, or why you wanted it to be traditionally published. Like what happened in that transition? I think I recognized um, that I am better suited to traditional publishing. And that's not to say I wouldn't be willing to um, self-publish again in the future, but um, it's it's so much work. And I don't think I'm as good at the business side of things as, um, and so I really, I love having the support of a publisher taking care of a lot of that stuff. Um, and then I can focus more on my strengths. Yeah. So I think that's what I realized after self-publishing The Faithful and then having it traditionally published and then going through the self-publishing process again with Impact Winter, which was a great process. But I was like, I I don't think I want to do this again. <laughs> I think I want to try and have a publisher. What do you love about, are you a full-time writer? I am. I mean, I'm a full-time mom and, and writer and my kids have been, uh, at least until this last year, have been fairly, you know, our schedule has been a little weird, especially in COVID, but they've been kind of homeschooled and kind of not. So, um, so there's been a lot of that as part of my, my focus. And then the rest of my time I spend focused on writing. So how many, like, what does your typical day look like as a writer and oh, a mom? Because you have to. 
chaos. Um, it looks like chaos. No. Um, so in terms of my writing, I tend to, uh, I tend to, if I'm, if I'm, it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm in research mode or plotting mode, it's a little different than if I'm in writing mode. Um, but, uh, I, I tend to start, like I get up fairly early and I, you know, I do my workout and I get everybody ready and off to their days and what have you. And then, and then I sit down to write and, um, or research or whatever it is I'm doing. Um, and I really do spend a number of hours on it every day. Um, sometimes more than others, but you know, when I'm in the midst of edits or something, I could spend a good 10 hours a day on it. And when you said you're in research and planning mode, yeah, that I love the research. It's like going down the rabbit holes. I love that part. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> so <laughs> like, you know, and, and it helps with your planning, right? Because, but it also, it's a double-edged sword because you'll find a nugget and you'll be like, oh, maybe oh, that's, that's something to explore. Right. But some of the great, the best ideas I've had have come from little weird nuggets and research that I'm like, that is super cool. And I need everybody to know about that. And then you have to like, and then you write it all. And then you're like, okay, now I need to take a whole bunch of this knowledge out and just make it the story. But you know, that's, that's something I'm always working on. It's like, okay, <laughs> pull back your research. And as you're writing, do you get to that, that what I call either the muddle in the middle or the mushy middle where you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. And how do you get out of it? I do. And you know what? Okay. So the faithful was a complete pants project. Like I did not really plot that at all. And I don't know how I survived it, honestly. Um, and so it required so much rewrite. And I mean, it's not that I didn't plot it all. I had ideas and I would write them down and I kind of knew the general direction I was going, but I had no idea how I was getting there. Um, and it worked, thank goodness. But the more books I write, the more I become a plotter because I just, I need to, I find it quite stressful to be writing a first draft. Um, without an, any knowledge of where I'm going or whether I'm going to make it to the end or if it's just going to fizzle out halfway through, which I've had happen too. I've had several stories where I'm like, I got to the 60,000 word mark and I'm like, uh, I think this might be done. Like, I just can't get further. And that was, that was not fun. So I try not to get there anymore. I try not to do that anymore. So I've become more and more of a plotter and I end up plotting I usually have an idea of where the story is going to end and I'll end up plotting um, the first half, but then I kind of need to pause and plot the next bit and the next bit. I don't, I, I'm, I've had a hard time plotting the whole way through, at least in any detail. So you've abandoned projects at 60,000 words. How are, how do you be okay with that? That's what I need to know. How, uh, like you, you, many writers, let me just say that we know inherently when a project is not working yeah. but some of us will will forge ahead and try to make the best of it either because that's just who we are or that's what we heard we should do or somebody has said that that's what we should do so how do you make it okay to just be like I'm I'm 60,000 in and it's not working and I will be okay with that how do you get there um, I don't think I was okay with it at the time. I think it's just in retrospect, I'm like, I'm okay with it. But you know, the, that book in particular that I abandoned, it was my attempt at, um, writing kind of a little bit more of a private detective story. And I, what I did was there was one really great aspect of that story. And it was the, it was the main character. Um, I absolutely loved him. And I actually took him and I used him in a completely different story. And he changed a lot. But it was like, that was the that was the beginning of him. And so I'm okay with it, because I got the best part of the story out of it, which was which was that character. Okay, I feel better now. My heart's not racing so much. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to quote no, no, and like, I talked to so many authors and, and almost everyone has a has a folder or uh yeah. you know on their computer or on google drive with abandoned projects and i i i don't know how i would cope with that i haven't gotten there yet 
And yeah. I think it's just part of the author journey is that at some point in your writing career, you will write a part of my language, fuck ton of words, and then be like, mm, no, it's not working. I have to walk away from it. Yeah. And I, I guess what I did was I realized it's not, I'm not walking away from it permanently. It's something I have. It's like part of my toolkit and I might be able to use some or all of it later or even just the idea to branch off into a new idea or something. So it was like, it's not completely wasted. It's just, um, it's not necessarily going to be a published book. I love that you, you've labeled it as part of your toolkit. Yeah. Right. Cause it, writing is takes practice and not well, all practice works out great. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That one did not. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you love the most about being a writer? Oh, you know, there's so many things I love about being a writer. I mean, I love being able to get up in the morning and, and play with the stories in my head and wear pajamas. Um, I love that. I love, um, I love when a story starts to make sense to me in my head. And like, I've, you know, when I've been in that, like, fog of I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know where I'm going, which never seems to get better, no matter, you know, I mean, I haven't written it's not like I've written 30 novels, but I still feel like it should be getting easier. And it's not, it's not getting easier. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's harder, but I love that moment when the fog lifts and you're like, oh, well, crap, that's what's happening. And it's, you know, and it's like, oh, that's so, that's so great. And then you get that excitement again. So I love that. I love editing. I'm a little cuckoo about that. I love editing and I love rewriting and I love making something better. Uh, which is good because I'm on, a, well, I finished a very deep third rewrite of the story that um, that I've sent to Stacy, And now I'm finally getting happy with it. Um, so I love that part. And I love the community. Yeah. I really love the writing community. Yeah. yeah. And what would you say is the most challenging and it doesn't have to be just it doesn't have to be practice of writing it could be anything that you know for some authors it's like book signings are brutal or uh, events or the whole marketing piece marketing is challenging for me for sure um i i think i'm leaning more and more into okay i just have to continue to be myself i can't push push past my comfort zones um, at least not by too, too much, um, uh, or it's just, it gets awkward and it's not truthful. Um, I, I think that I, 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 one of the struggles that I'm going through is just knowing, like, I have an enormous sense of, um, responsibility to my publisher. And I, and I thought all authors felt that way until I talked with some of my, my fellow authors and they kind of gave me that, like, huh? Look, like, what are you talking about? I feel an enormous sense of responsibility to do everything I absolutely can marketing wise to help. And it's probably the, just my self-publishing background. It's like, well, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And, and realizing that actually you can do as much as you can do. And that's great. But at the end of the day, you don't have a lot of control over it. You have to kind of let it go. Um, and it will either be successful or it won't. And, you know, at the end of the day, all you can do is control your work and how, and you know, how much effort you put into your words and how much effort you put into, you know, making them the best they can be. And the rest you have to kind of let go. It's not always easy. It's not easy. No. no. Um, <clears throat> what would today's Shoshana tell 12 year old Shoshana? Oh, keep writing. <laughs> Just keep writing. Yeah. The bad um, poetry has its place. <laughs> it does. It really does. Yeah. And all that teen angst is going to be great someday, you know? Um, yeah. It, just keep going. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and what are you working on now? Well, you're working on this second manuscript that you gave to Stacy, right? Yeah. So I have two that um, needed rewrites, big rewrites. And uh, so I've sent one off to Stacy, and I'm taking a little mental break, a little bit of a vacation, and before starting to tackle the third, the other one. Um, 
and I kind of bouncing back and forth between those two. And I have another idea that's kind of percolating on the side. So I'm, I'm just, I spend a little bit of time researching for that as well, and hopefully I'll get to it. But I've also set a goal of trying to write the third and final in the faithful series this year as well. Getting oh, wow. Well, we'll see. We'll see if that <laughs> happens, but I, I feel like I need to at least set the goal or it's just not going to happen. Another year will go by and it's like, oh, I blinked. Oh, I haven't touched that at all. And um, I definitely have readers who want, want it. And I feel quite guilty when I'm like, yeah, oh, I'm working on it, but I haven't really, I haven't gotten it there yet. So can you tell us, um, the one that you just did the third revision rewrite on. Can you give us a little clue what it's about or is it a hush hush? Um, no, I'll give you a clue. Okay. Uh, hopefully it's going to end up being something like this though. Um, you never know. <laughs> uh, but so it was a story that began um, actually one or it, it didn't win. It um, was a finalist in the ECW press uh, best speculative novel award or whatever I might have gotten their title a little messed up but anyway and um and that helped but uh but it didn't they didn't it didn't win so there was no publishing contract offered um it's a story about uh actually I okay so the problem is with this story is that I wrote it as an adult story they were young they're in their 20s but I wrote it as an adult story and there was something wrong with it that I couldn't figure out for a very long time mm. through a lot of edits. And, and it occurred to me sometime in this past year, I guess, um, that the problem with it was that it wasn't an adult story. It was YA. And I've never written YA before. So um, I didn't know what in the world I was doing when it came to like writing a young adult story. Um and uh but the once that idea stuck I was like I tried to push it away for a little bit and I was like no no I don't want that but I don't want to try and attempt that but uh once it stuck it's a little claw into my brain I was like well crap I think that's true <laughs> and so I was literally quite scared and I actually I sent an email to Stacy and I'm like so I've been having these thoughts and I was really quite worried about you know how she would respond to that and she was like well, we should talk about that. And then she was super positive and, and gave me some great advice about it. And, and that made me feel confident to kind of try <laughs> to go forward with it. And I'm actually a lot happier with it now than I was. So it's a story that um, tells, uh, it's a two per person point of view, and uh, it goes into Jewish mysticism quite deeply and Jewish, um, uh, so, you know, it's a story about a boy named Roger, whose older sister has a baby. And at five days old, the baby goes missing the same as he did when he was five days old before mm -hmm. his bris, before he has the protection um, that comes with a bris. And a bris is a ceremony in which a Jewish male is circumcised, usually around the eight day old mark. Um, it's called changeling, at least at the moment. Um, most of my titles get changed along the way. So I try not to hold too tight to them. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's a baby that was, um, I'm trying to figure out, I haven't got the, you know, you know how when you're, when you've got your book together and it's going towards publication, you work on your elevator pitches and you've got it better. I don't have my elevator pitch for this yet, but um, anyway, it's, it's a story that delves deep into mystical Judaism, um, you know, demons, demonology, um, indigenous Judaism, what we were like thousands and thousands of years ago when women were considered just as powerful as men. So it's quite feminist story as well. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, let's let's talk about briefly the Globe and Mail list. Tell us about that. That must have been like mind blowing. That was totally mind blowing, and I'm uh, I don't think I've come down from my surprise on that one because it was not really what I expected. Um, and uh, but yeah, it's I'll take it. I mean, so it was the Globe and Mail 
recommended reads for 2022 or something like that? Yeah, they call yeah. it the top 100 best books of 2022. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and somehow my book made it on the list and, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm a little shocked about it, but, uh, it's been a really wild, wonderful journey. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. It's so like, wow. I know. Um, and, it, and well-deserved because it is a masterfully written book and every page is, a, is a turner literally. Oh, so, you. well, Shoshana, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You too. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. You can find Blood Atonement and Shoshana's other books wherever books are sold. I'd like to invite you to check out my newsletter over on Substack at danagoldstein.substack.com. You can also check out my own books at danagoldstein.ca. Once again, thanks for giving me your ears. Hey, thanks for hanging around to the end. Here's a little bit of bonus content for those of you who stuck around. I would say my reading taste is eclectic, but that's inaccurate. I'll just, I'll pretty much give anything a try that's put in front of me because I believe that that's how you grow as a writer is like read outside the genre you're writing in. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I actually find the, the, more I go that if I read outside my genre, I can relax. It's easier to relax when I'm reading something that's not my genre. When I'm reading um, something that's more of a thriller, or psychological thriller, or a mystery, or whatever, I'm I'm I still have my writer head on. Where it is, so if I want to relax, I've got to read something that's completely outside my genre. Do you find that when you're reading thriller, you're like unpacking it as a study rather than enjoying it as a novel I totally do that and I mean I can enjoy it as well but there's a there's like little part of my brain that doesn't shut off in the same way it used to and and uh because I'm always trying to figure out what they're doing or how they're doing it or what's coming next or you know I'm trying to I'm trying to unweave the story and um and it it does kind of take me out of it a little bit sometimes which is unfortunate but it's probably just part of the job exactly 